Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, chat, Mike, chat. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Word up. It's that biblical, biblical theology, theology setting the person of God attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics. And Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet. So please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology. That phrase alone, they give some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough. Uh-huh. Just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication. A work of art from Genesis to Revelation. From God's creation, creation. to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed. Romans 11.36 Biblical theology encompasses Who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes So clever we behold his endeavors unfold The greatest story ever told The Christian life is a difficult odyssey The faithful are a statistical anomaly The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically That's why we need that biblical theology Lord God, deliver us from apostasy The human heart is given to idolatry The situation is critical, we got to see the importance of biblical theology. Yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. Thank you, Lord. He gave us the word providing us correction yeah. and the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our reflections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our death, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. one week uh, for sure. Uh, last week I was actually at the 
uh, cross-examined instructors academy that we've been uh, promoting on this show for quite a while, and uh, I've had a few few of the instructors uh, on to talk about the show, and uh, man, it was a it was really a great experience. Uh, we had uh, Jay Warner Wallace, uh, who was actually a uh, detective. He was a he's a homicide detective, and uh, kind of kind of interesting. He's been on Dateline several times, and um, brings kind of a unique perspective uh, into apologetics. He recently wrote a book um, called Cold Case Christianity, and uh, he just kind of demonstrates how uh, most of the evidence that they use in court and uh, uh, to, to make, you know, pretty solid rulings and decisions are, are based on circumstantial evidence. And uh, using that method and applying it to the New Testament, it's pretty incredible uh, what you can get. So he was there. We had uh, Brett Conkle. Uh, he was there from Stand to Reason, talked about his trips down to Berkeley, California, where he takes his college uh, youth group. And they often engage with atheists and skeptics and talk about uh, things like arguments for God's existence, uh, as well as they've taken a few trips to uh, Utah to engage with uh, Mormons. So that's always been an uh, interesting time as well. Uh, we had so we had Greg Kokel. He was also there, and uh, it was just a great time. So uh, it was a good three days of, of solid training. Uh, but it didn't help that the air conditioner went out the very first day, and it was like a 14-hour day the first day, and it was man, it was had to be 100 and something degrees in there, but got through it and had a good time. So anyway, good to be back. Really looking forward to today's show. Uh, we we had our guest on previously, uh, probably a few weeks back, uh, to do a show on Saint Anselm. And uh, I, I came across Dr. Sadler uh, by watching some YouTube videos uh, on his uh, philosophy uh, lectures and have just been really blown away with his knowledge and with his ability to really take a lot of – now, philosophy is not easy. <laughs> it's, it's really – it's not easy. It's, it's good stuff, and I love it, but it's not easy. It can be hard. It can be hard. And Dr. Sadler does a good job of taking some some hard, complex issues and kind of putting them on the bottom shelf for guys like me. So we're going to have him on today. We're going to be uh, discussing uh, St. Thomas Aquinas and more specifically um, his work on natural law, which is something I'm, I'm really interested in. So I'm actually really excited to do this show. So Dr. Sadler is uh, author and instructor at uh, Marist College. He received both his master's and Ph.D. in philosophy from Southern Illinois uh, Carbondale. He's also the founder of, uh, I think that's Reason.io, uh, an organization that brings philosophy into practice, making complex classical philosophical ideas accessible for a wide audience of professional students and lifetime learners. So with us on the line, uh, we should have Dr. Sadler. Are you there? I am. Can you hear me? I can hear you good. Can you hear me okay? I can, yeah. So um, where would you like to start? Should we start with some general background on Thomas Aquinas? 
We can do. Did, did I leave anything out? Uh, I didn't mean to. Uh, if I left anything out or you wanted to mention anything, uh, feel free to do so. I don't know if I murdered the the, na- the name no, of no, the I, foundation that started. I was wondering if we should start with some background on Thomas Aquinas. Okay. You you, you show us where you want us to go, and we'll, we'll follow. Okay, so... Thomas Aquinas is um, a saint and, and a doctor of the church, which means that he is one of the people who is looked to as being a great teacher. And he sort of ends up smack dab in the middle of a whole line of, of people before him who he incorporates into his work and then people after him all the way down to the, the present century. And he is coming not only right in the middle of this long chain of, of Christian thinkers, He's also coming really right in the middle of the Middle Ages themselves in the 13th century, what they call the High Middle Ages, where a lot of things were starting to go radically right, you know, in the sense that um, standards of living had been increased, um, a lot of the the collapse of of civilization that in large part had taken place um, because of the fall of the Roman Empire and all the barbarian incursions, a lot of that work had been had been redone, and Thomas is at the center of the new university movement. Universities were were fairly new, and he was one of the, eventually, one of the masters. First he was a student, and then he became a master teaching at the University of Paris. Uh, His specialty was theology, and we consider him a philosopher, but he's also a major theologian, and then there's, you know, a lot of discussions about, well, where does the philosophy end and the the theology begin, uh, and different people have different takes on that. Um, Thomas wrote an awful lot of stuff, and I don't know too many people that have actually managed to sit down and read through everything that he wrote, because it's it's a lot. Um, And I don't know, I know even less that I could say have managed to wrap their heads around every single thing that that he wrote. So usually we're focusing in on some particular works or areas. And his his most important work is called the Summa Theologia. And it means the sum of theology or the the compendium of theology. Interestingly enough, he, he says at the beginning of it that it's written for beginners. It's not written for the, the experts. It's written to be kind of a a guidebook to, to think things through. And what he well, does in each each part of the Soma is he starts with a question, you know, like, for instance, can God's existence be proven? And then he looks at a number of people saying or arguments saying, no, no, that that's not going to work. And then he brings in some other people saying, no, to the contrary, it will work. And then he says, okay, now that we've looked at everybody else's views and some some possible uh, arguments about this, now I'm going to tell you what I actually think. And I think that's really great philosophical practice to survey the, the field of other people, not reinvent any wheels, and then see whether there's more to be said about the issue. And as it turns out, there usually does seem to be more to be said about the issue. And then Thomas will give his own take. Sometimes it's something radically new. Um, but oftentimes it's something in continuity with with the people that he loves the most and wants to study the most, like, like St. Augustine or John Damascene, and also philosophers like Aristotle. So I think that he, gives he you an a, idea. Uh, 
He took a Go lot ahead. from Aristotle. Didn't didn't he take a lot from Aristotle and kind of refine some of Aristotle's views, I guess, on uh, metaphysics? Not only that, but also moral philosophy. He um, he was lucky enough to live at a time when works of Aristotle that had been lost to the Christian West were were coming again coming again to be available in Latin translations, and there was a very mixed reception to Aristotle. Some people, like like uh, you know, some extreme um, examples, thought that, that Aristotle was just you know a tool of the devil, and don't let any of that that pagan philosophy in because uh, it's just going to cause trouble. And then there were people far on the other extreme who were saying, well, no, Aristotle got every single thing right, and if if a Christian faith disagrees with Aristotle, so much the worse for Christian faith. And Thomas was more in the middle. He wanted to say, well, this is good stuff. You know, we're not going to reject it out of hand just because it's something new, but we want to... We want to assimilate it, you know. We want to digest it. And some parts of it are going to be more digestible and some parts are not going to be. Um, there, were, there were definitely some advantages to Aristotle's approach on, on some issues. Uh, for, for example, the nature of virtue. So what is what is virtue? It's moral goodness that's become a habit within a person. And Aristotle had a conception of virtue as a mean generally between two extremes. And that had gotten lost in large part in Christian thought. And it was a very useful way of thinking about the kinds of characteristics that we want to cultivate in ourselves, you know, like courage, for example, or justice. Um, so... Yeah, you could say he was a mitigated Aristotelian in many respects. Okay. I guess he he, um, he did he kind of also modify some of like Saint Augustine's uh, theology and some of his works as well. Is that kind of the base of where he he got a lot of his stuff from? Or yeah, Augustine is probably the most important theologian in the background of Thomas's thought. But you could say okay. that about just about anybody at, at his time. Augustine is a major source. Um, but but another person who you see getting mentioned a lot is John Damasking. Um, and Thomas mentions just all sorts of church um, fathers, doctors, uh, thinkers of all sorts, from Hillary to Basil to... Uh, Benedict, you know, the one who wrote the, the Benedictine rule, um, if they had something that was worth thinking about, odds are that Thomas got to read them, which was al already a big accomplishment, and thought a bit about them. And if they had anything good to contribute, he sucked them into his own uh, way of, of, of thinking and, and tried to fuse it all together. So, But Augustine, yeah, he's definitely a first uh, order of importance in Thomas's thought. Okay. Great. All right. So, and I, guess, I know he was uh, kind of. Maybe you could you could talk for a minute or two. What is some of the things that um, St. Thomas is is known for? I guess today. Well, um, in philosophy classes, we almost always end up 
mentioning him in philosophy of religion mainly because of his five ways for arguing for God's existence and his um, his arguments against some of the other arguments. And that's something that could be, you know, an entire show could be done on, on any of those. Um, some of them were taking ideas from from Arist- Aristotle's metaphysics and then refining them and going much further. Some of them were were um, well fairly fairly unique to Thomas. Um, so he's important in that respect. He also he's one of the guys who sort of sets the agenda for thinking about the relationships between faith and reason and philosophy and theology, or, or Christianity and culture in general. Um, and there's a lot more that could be said about that, I, I suppose. But but I'd like to also mention, um, you know, there isn't a, a theological issue that Thomas didn't rethink in, in one way or another and try to build off of the best of what other people had to offer. So, for example, um, on the issue of original sin, um, you know, Augustine is, of course, very important early on in, in this this concept of original sin, um, something that Chesterton actually says is <laughs> the one, the one uh, dogma that's actually empirically proven. You just have to look around and, and, and see the effects of it. Um, but... You know, if you look at, at Aquinas's discussions of it, the person who actually is his, his most important interlocutor isn't Augustine. It's it's Saint Anselm, who's closer to him in time. Uh, and uh, you know, he thought that Anselm had gotten a lot of things right, and then he'd say, "This is great stuff. How can we make this more clear? How you know? How can we answer the questions that that Anselm didn't go on to answer that are bothering?" bothering me or somebody else down the street is, is being bothered by them. Um, so there's there's all sorts of um, interesting philosophical and theological issues that, that he tackled. Um, the nature of the virtues. Um, how do we how do we sort of so to speak unscrew up ourselves uh, in, in our moral lives? That's that's stuff where Thomas made some definite contributions. And so natural law, which is what we're going to talk more about uh, tonight that's at the heart of his his moral philosophy um, and he made some some solid contributions to that as a matter of fact what we call natural law theory today is is largely along Thomistic lines um, rather than some of the other possibilities stoic lines or or uh, Aristotelian lines Thomas kind of sets the uh, sets the agenda for that Okay, I guess um I guess maybe we can we can move on to the topic uh, of the show because I guess this is I mean I know there's a lot of areas but this is maybe one area uh, in particular today um where we could we could really learn a lot uh from 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 Thomas Aquinas on uh on this particular issue. So maybe uh you could tell us a little bit about kind of the the general idea of, of natural law. I'm, I'm not sure if many of our listeners have heard about it before. Um, they probably would be able to, to recognize it, you know, in, in some way, but maybe not seen it um, laid out like this. So maybe you can yeah, talk to us about that. 
it's not a notion that we're unfamiliar with. Um, at, you know, when we think about moral life and making decisions and, and things like that, there's a lot of things that that dovetail into it that we don't use the word natural law for in in our century, but which when we look at it in Thomas's eyes, we can see that, yeah, that's that's actually part of it. On the other hand, too, there's also a number of different theories of natural law floating around out there that are quite different from from Thomas's. So John Locke's notion of natural law that um, in some ways finds its way into founding documents for, you know, the, Amer- the new American state, like the Declaration of Independence makes makes references to to uh, some natural ideas coming from Locke. It's, it's quite different than what Thomas has in mind. So what Thomas has in mind is that there are some general precepts or principles, some, some very basic starting points about good and evil, right and wrong, and we're able to recognize these because they're, they're rooted in some way in our common human nature. So they transcend cultures, they transcend epochs or ages they are they're good for all time this doesn't mean that everybody recognizes them you know with the same sort of clarity but they're all there in us if we do the work to 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 bring them out and and how do we do that well by application of human reason so this is actually something that makes um natural law kind of attractive in an apologetic perspective because if you think about one area that um, Christianity, and not just Christianity, but other religions, tend to get attacked on, it's that when it comes to right and wrong, good and bad, you know, how we ought to, to live together in society, you know, you you religious people are taking your notions from these, these texts and we don't all agree with them or, or subscribe to them. Right. And, you know, you're claiming that it's coming from this transcendent deity that I can't touch or see or feel, and and I don't like that. Is is the, the the you know the basic response, or you know it's not fair for you Christians to privilege your your personal con- you know you've all heard this language before that your personal conception of of what God wants from you. So if you if you right. have this notion of natural law, you can say on the one hand, well these ideas aren't just coming from the Bible. As a matter of fact, you could reason these out and see that killing people, you know, with no provocation is a bad idea. Um, Whether, you know, whether God said so or not in, in the, uh, you know, in the Decalogue and so many of the other laws, you know, and also so many other places, you can see that, that this is a, a bad idea and that you shouldn't do it and that you should sort of try to preserve life. So it, it, on the one hand, you can do that. On the other hand, it, it allows you to answer the question, well, where did we get this reason from? and Where did we get this common human nature from? And the answer to that within a natural law perspective is God. God created us as this kind of being, as, as having animality like other animals, but also having rationality, and being able to use that distinctive gift to to sort of analyze what it is that we are and how we ought to behave and and what our basic inclinations are driving us towards and when we should follow them and when we shouldn't. So to to engage in natural law thinking is going beyond just apologetics is to actually 
do what it is that God wants us to do from a from a Thomistic perspective. He wants us to use our reason. He wants us to to use reason to make the best choices, uh, to use our will rightly, to to cultivate the things that we're supposed to cultivate. Uh, it's really, in some ways, a, a, go ahead. Well, no, no, go, go ahead and finish, Plaid. I was just going to ask you a question, kind of along these same lines. Well, I was going to say, it's um, Thomas calls natural law a participation or a glimmering, and irradatio is the Latin word, of the eternal law that, that God, in the end, it actually is God in God's essence. Um, but God is as ruler of, of everything, is providentially ordering things. We're able to participate in that a little bit, and one a very important way in which we do that is by how we make our choices. Because we're different than, you know, a stone or a slug or a dog. We have free wills, and, you know, we can use them in all sorts of bad ways, which we, we quite often do. Um, but we're given the capacity to work upon ourselves and to use reason, which is which is a gift from God to do that. Now, of course, you know, if you say stuff like that to a non-believer, they're not interested in that, that part of the, the side. But they can at least say, well, yeah, your Ten Commandments, um, if you see them in light of natural law principles, maybe they make a bit of sense. Right. Because there are there were there are atheists, uh, atheist philosophers that do argue for for natural law for natural law. Is that is that right or am I wrong? Well, there again there are there are different natural law theories out there, and okay. with the atheists that are talking about natural law, and, and there aren't very many of them, um, they usually have in mind something quite different than what Thomas um, had in mind, and. They're, they're oftentimes engaging in things that are tied to evolutionary biology and saying, okay. you know, we ought to behave in this way because... And that's been going on for a long time, that's several centuries of, of speculation. Right. Along I guess, do they see um, the kind of the design or the purpose of certain things? And that's kind of where they... They're thinking, you know, I know there's even, even um, pro-life atheist groups. In fact, there was... Um, it was a meeting in Austin, Texas, uh, where they actually did, at this this big atheist conference, they actually had a debate uh, with uh, with a pro-life atheist uh, versus a pro-choice atheist, and she was, you know, she was appealing to, to, to some of these things as far as you know being human and and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, you know. Thomas would look at something like that and he would say, well, that makes sense because although there's ways to, you might say, silence the natural law and its workings, it's not as if you can completely erase it from the human being. Whether a person believes in God or not, uh, the natural law is still in some way present within them. As a matter of fact, he one of the big passages for natural law early on is you know Paul's letter to the Romans, where he's um, saying when the Gentiles who don't have the law do by nature the things that are contained in the law, they're a law unto themselves because it's written in their their heart. And so it's it's you know it's one of those sort of um, issues where whether a person believes or not, 
it doesn't uh, take away what they have by human nature, and it shouldn't interfere, although it does often interfere, right, um, with their rationality. Right. Now, in, or, in order to, natural law doesn't, doesn't deal with everything that we need, and Thomas says we also do need a divine law on the one hand to, uh, for all for various purposes, and we can talk about that in a, in a few minutes, but we also do need determinate human laws for each community because natural law really only tells us about the very general precepts. Um, it doesn't get all the way down to the nitty-gritty particulars where we tend to get the most disagreement. Um, but it does provide us with a useful basis where, where you and I can talk with an atheist, or um, presumably it could be of use also for talking with, with people of other religions. If we right. have these same basic human what Thomas calls inclinations, and there's a number of these that he, he talks about, and we're able to use reason together to try to figure out, well, what do these mean and how ought we actually live these out and, and how far should they go, then um, we ought to be able to attain some sort of basis for, for morality. Does, does, let me ask you this, because I was thinking about this earlier. Does the natural law and the, and the moral law, do they kind of overlap sometimes? Yeah, you can say that the, um, the moral law... I know they're not the law, same. Well, um, I mean, strictly speaking, from Thomas's perspective, the moral law would be the eternal law. This is what Augustine... Okay. Um, uh, when he's talking about eternal law, he means God's law. And, you know, once you, I mean, here's the thing, once you bring God into the picture, he, he pretty much has to end up being at the apex of everything or else you're not really dealing with God, are you? You're dealing with some, some other kind of idea. So, I mean, once you've got a transcendent God in the picture, then uh, unless you've got some, you know, odd conception of him being not omnipotent or not, you know, omniscient or, you know, you're making some, some modifications that way. He, the moral law at its heart ought to be what God wants for us. Now, mm -hmm. then the question arises, so how do we figure out, out that? Because we don't know God in himself. Thomas says the only people that actually know God in himself are, well, God, you know, uh, who knows himself eternally, uh, lucky God there, and the <laughs> blessed who are in heaven. Um, who get to see God in, in God's essence. So for the rest of us poor saps down here, um, the question is, well, how are we going to access that? And so there's multiple modes. And one of the modes is natural law. And we can figure out a lot of stuff through natural law. And another mode would be through divinely revealed laws, you know, if you if you have the Ten Commandments and you actually follow them, you are going to do what the the natural law requires of you, um, and you'll you know you'll develop a, if you actually don't do it in a grudging way, but actually try to you know as Psalm one says, meditate on the, the the law of the Lord, and and actually care about it, then you'll you'll develop the virtues that you need for that. Um, so you know, two paths to the same sort of place. Um, so well, the moral me, law. 
Go ahead. Oh, I'm, I'm, I was just going to ask you, with, so for like example, with the natural law, say like when we look at the Ten Commandments, for example, like I know that the natural law would apply to, you know, thou shalt not murder, shalt not steal, um, you know, adultery, these things. Would, would it also apply to things like, um, you know, have no God before me, you know, don't make an, an idol for yourself? Would that be more? Would that be natural law? Would that be moral law, or, or kind of how would they would they just overlap? Well, so a couple of different questions there. First off, yeah. um, when we when we come to the Ten Commandments, so that's part of what Thomas in his classification of law calls the old law, and so he's distinguishing divine law into old law and and new law, the gospel of grace. And then the old law, he distinguishes into three kinds of precepts, the moral precepts, the ceremonial precepts, and the judicial precepts. And we'll, we'll leave aside the judicial precepts because that gets a little complicated. Um, the ceremonial precepts are things like, you know, don't boil a calf in its mother's milk, which is, is the basis for one of the, the practices in, in the kosher laws. And that sort of stuff, that's good for a given people at a given time, and, and there's sort of types of what we ought to be doing. But but they're not really obligatory once we've got something better on the scene, Thomas would say. The moral law given in the Old Testament, which includes the Decalogue, but a, a number of other things too, like don't move boundary markers, you know. Um, don't Don't take bribes if you're a judge. Uh, don't allow the rich to sway you or the poor to sway you is, is one of the, the rules in the Old Testament. Um, those are still binding, and a lot of those can be known through the natural law by, by, by doing what we ought to do, looking at our human inclinations, using our reason, following out the most general principles to, to what he calls from the first precepts to the secondary precepts, the more, the more particular ones. Uh, but some of them can't. Some of them actually, God, you know, reveals something that, that uh, we needed to hear in order for us to be happy, in order for us to, to get on the right path. Um, but we couldn't figure out with our own nature. Now, there, it gets a little bit more complicated because there are some of these where Thomas says we get to learn them through the mediation of the wise. Um, you know, what he calls the sapientibus, the, those who actually know, who have experienced, who have thought things through. And a lot of the precepts fit into that category. So um, there are some things in the Decalogue. For, for example, you know, that we should, um, with honoring the Sabbath, that we should take a day of rest and exclude other concerns and all the other things that we're tempted to, to stick in there uh, from that day, we can figure that out, Thomas thinks, by using the natural law. Should it be on Sunday or should it have been on Saturday? Well, that we can't figure out by using the natural law because that in some ways is kind of arbitrary. You know, um, that's where God, God steps in and God has certain purposes for saying, hey, it's this day. And 
they may be, you know, things that we can figure out eventually, but I'll, I'll confess that I don't really know myself why. I know why it is switched from Saturday to Sunday. That has to do with, you know, some of the t- decisions made in the early church about, you know, um, honoring Christ and all that. But I can't. I can say I know what those are, but I can't say that I fully understand them. But I don't. I don't actually need to in order to to, to take the day off on Sunday and not. Um, say, fall into the temptation of filling it up with all the work I didn't get done during the week, you know. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the Decalogue is, is um, the Decalogue is one that Thomas talks about quite a bit, um, or not one, but, you know, a set of precepts that he talks about quite a bit, and, and he connects a lot of them with, with natural law. I would say that, you know, in our day, um, the ones that are particularly uh, contested tend to be not so much the you know the have no God before me or you know uh, honor you know keep keep holy the Sabbath. I think that the ones that that are probably at greatest risk are don't commit adultery because mm-hmm. uh, people you know will say well it sounds sounds fine if I'm in a committed relationship I shouldn't shouldn't cheat then but it's not actually just saying don't don't screw around if you're married. It's uh, you know it's wider in application than that, and honor thy thy uh, their mother and father. I think that that one gets gets uh, wow. a lot of short shrift in our society. And you know if you were to think out what it takes for human beings to function well, what it takes for their their basic inclinations to be to be satisfied and for them to be living a healthy, productive full life, which include relationships with other people, um, you're doing what the natural law, what Thomas thinks the natural law requires us to do. And I think that would lead you to see that, yeah, you probably should honor parents. Um, sure. You probably, you know, uh, should actually think out, well, what does honoring mean in this case? And what does it mean in this case? And what does it mean in this case? Um, so, Yeah. That's a long, uh, long answer yeah. to a short question. <laughs> oh, hey, that's a that's a good answer for sure. I'll let you kind of go where you want. I wasn't sure if you wanted to to do kind of where does the conception of natural law come from historically, or uh, and just for for people listening, um, Doctor Sadler, what time did you want me to open the phone lines? You 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 tell me, and that's when we'll do it. Um. I'm pretty flexible. How about how about seven? That's okay, about seven o'clock. All right, so that'll give you guys about twenty minutes. Uh, you know, write down any questions you guys may have as, as uh, Dr. Sadler is leading us through this. And uh, the the phone number is actually seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven. And uh, if we don't get any calls, we can just keep going through the. Uh, through the talk here, so I'll kind of let you go where you, where sure. you want to go from here. We got a uh, about an hour and a half, a little less than an hour and a half, so feel free to take your time. Okay, so you know it's it's very easy to talk about natural law this and natural law that, but I, I would think that somebody would want to know. Well, you know, first off, what do the precepts actually consist in? And I'll, I'll get to those. Um, but also, well, how does this actually work? Because if you're saying that it comes from human reason, 
I've got human reason, and I think about stuff all the time, but I didn't come up with this notion of natural law. And uh, so, you know, where is this coming from, Dr. Sadler? And, and so if we turn away and say, well, hey, Thomas, where is this stuff coming from? Thomas has some answers for us. And um, what he says is the natural law provides us with some really general principles. And Thomas thinks of our moral decision-making whether we're talking about, you know, legislation, you know, for a whole society, whether we're talking about how you run your household, whether we're talking about you get thrown into a dilemma and you have to think out what to do or you're in a situation of temptation. He thinks that um, we start from general principles and then we sort of reason our way down to the specifics. So I get angry with somebody and I, I'm tempted to pick up a brick and clobber them with it. And I think to myself... I don't think to myself, well, I should only, you know, I shouldn't clobber somebody with a brick in this case. What confronts me is I probably shouldn't clobber people with bricks in general. Why not? Because in general, it's not really about bricks. It's about doing harm. And I shouldn't harm people in general. And this person is a person. Uh, so this is one of those cases where I should not follow my, what my appetites or passions are, are steering me towards, and I should resist that temptation, and I should, you know, um, do what's needed in order to do that, like maybe, you know, take a walk somewhere, take some deep breaths, figure out what's making me so angry, and, and take care of that sort of thing. So you notice already there, I've gone from uh, a very specific situation, and you notice in that some general principles sort of popped up and arose, and then we reasoned our way towards a, a better solution. So natural law does stuff like that. And Thomas says, strictly speaking, everything to which a human being is inclined, according to his or her nature, pertains to the natural law. So this covers a lot of ground. You know, what are our basic inclinations or, or drives or, or uh, you might say, wants and needs? Um, well, you know, if you start at a very basic level, we got to eat. So eating is part of the natural law. Food production is going to be part of the natural law. How we disseminate food is going to be part of it. Um, we need shelter. We need clean air, clean water. Um, then we, we start getting to more and more complex things, things that are actually much more distinctively human. Um, we form relationships. And we form relationships of different kinds. You know, we form the familial relationship in which uh, children are raised and nourished and educated, hopefully. And we, we get together in larger organizations that we call societies or, or political communities. And with each one of these sorts of things, if it's really in our nature, if we have some inclinations that are really natural, not unnatural inclinations, like, you know, uh, we don't have a, a natural inclination, Thomas would say, to, to gobble up candy, you know, just because we may have an inclination to buy a bag of M&Ms and then say, well, I'm going to only eat, you know, uh, a tenth of the bag and then find ourselves eating half the bag. Thomas doesn't say, well, natural law said it was okay for you to do that. Um, he means inclinations that are actually part of our common human nature. So, among the things that we have a natural inclination to do, because we're human beings, is to actually to act according to reason. Um, so when we're reasoning things out, we are, in fact, following the natural law to a certain extent. Thomas thinks that um, 
the broadest, most general precept of the natural law is, is this one. Good is to be sought and done, and evil is to be avoided. So that is the most common, broadest cover-it-all conception. Good is to be sought and done, and evil is to be avoided. Now, you notice that doesn't actually tell you what's good and what's evil. You have to consult our, our, our inclinations, and we have to reason in order to make sense out of that, right? So when we look at the different things to which we're inclined, um, Thomas says, and this is not an exhaustive list, but he says, if we start at the real basic level, what do we have in common with all beings, all other things that exist? Every, everything has an appetite to remain in existence. Everything tries to continue, to perdure, you could say. So from this, if we think it through, we can see that we actually ought to maintain those things that preserve human life. Not just our own life, too, but, but other people's lives. We ought to try to not just provide them, but preserve them. And um, we ought to do the things that stave off death. Now, you know, does that mean that in every situation we, we ought to always act so as to keep people from dying? Well, there, you know, when we get down to the nitty-gritty particulars, there could be cases in which, um, you know, perhaps uh, you, you do allow somebody to die, not, not you know, choosing it as such, but, it, you know, uh, because it, it, it's unavoidable given the circumstances. There's still something right. objectively bad in that. But in general, the principle is preserve life. Right. Don't take life, you know. Don't don't damage uh, other other beings. Um, if you do damage them, better do what you can to heal them up or to make up for it. So well, that's one that's one um, set of precepts that are coming from the, the natural law. And then another, if you think about what we have in common with other animals besides eating, you know, um, well, what is it? Think about mammals, for example. So what makes us mammals? Um, we have hair, but really the natural law isn't about hair so much. We we nurse our young, and we you know we reproduce. Right, reproduction is part of the natural law. It's a, it's a, something that the natural law tells us ought to be done in accordance with with reason, not just any time you feel like doing it, but you know, uh, in some sort of measured, well ordered way. But then once you actually have children, once you actually have reproduced. We're not turtles. We don't just, you know, waddle off and leave the clutch of eggs there and they're on their own, you know, or like alligators that sometimes eat their young. Um, we raise our young, and we have to do an awful lot of this. You know, it takes a, it takes a lot of time and effort and uh, uh, patience and sacrifice in order to, to do a good job raising children. But that's what the natural law tells us that we ought to be doing. And it, it's not just to at an individual level where because I have kids, I ought to be taking an interest in, in their proper upbringing. It can also be understood on a societal level. We ought to be taking an interest in, in what's happening to the next generation, you know. Right. Um, I, su I suppose from a natural law perspective, if we think that student loan debt and the fact that we have all these people who are graduating 
who don't have very good prospects for getting jobs, the natural law would tell us that we ought to be concerned about that and try to figure out some sort of equitable solution. It wouldn't tell us exactly what the solution is, I, I think, but it would tell us this is a real issue. This is something that ought to be on your um, on your horizon. Now, when we get to our distinctively human nature, you know, we're, we're past what we have in common with rocks and matchboxes and, and bunny rabbits and trees and stuff like that, and we think about what makes us distinctively human, we want to see whether we have inclinations at that level too. And Thomas thinks that we do. He says one of these is to avoid ignorance. You know, Aristotle um, put his finger on this by saying, all men by nature desire to know in the beginning of the metaphysics. Do they all desire to know the same thing? No, of course not. But they all want to know something. They all want to move themselves out of the condition of ignorance into a condition of actually having some sort of knowledge. That's an inclination within us. And that ought to be well governed by, by reason. Um, not offending those who lives who one lives in society with. Um, that's something that the natural law tells us is is, is something we ought to be uh, thinking about. Um, living in society at all, you know. Thomas would Thomas would say that the person who's a total recluse, there's something really damaged about that life. There's something distinctively lacking, a human good that that's that's missing there. That the natural law would say that person ought to be uh, steering themselves towards. And um, among these these goods of, of, of our human nature is rational. Thomas thinks that learning the truth about God fits into there as well. So the natural law would tell us, you know, if, if there is a God, and Thomas thinks there is, um, and, and, you know, we want to, to know things and we want to live a full life, well, you'd, you'd better steer yourself towards knowing something about him, you know. Wow. Um, and that also means, too, again, the natural law doesn't just tell us what we ought to do for ourselves. It also tells us, hey, that, that other guy over there, he's equally human. He's equally valuable as you. He also ought to enjoy these goods that, that are things that we're inclined to by, by human nature. There's other things, too, that, that you know, kind of flow out of this. So if you think of um, the natural laws telling us how we ought to behave so that we, we realize our, our human potential, um, one of the things that's indispensable for that is cultivating virtues and what, what for a lot of us is equally important, um, rooting out vices. Because it's not as if we start from a blank slate. You know, By the time we, we get concerned about virtue and vice, um, at least speaking from my own experience, which, which includes my, my own life, um, we've, we've accumulated vices. We're not just you know, trying to steer ourselves towards, towards uh, virtue. We have to actually do the work to, to try to identify, say, the vice of pride and then figure out, well, what am I going to do about this? How am I going to, to try to uh, undo this terrible habit on my part of trying to constantly insert myself or make it all about me or, or you know, uh, place myself above of others in my considerations? That takes a lot of work, right? But the natural law tells us 
hey, if you actually want to be happy and you want other people to be happy and you want things to go well, you got to do that. Um, and it's not just with pride. It would also be with, you know, our need for courage. And so not being a coward, actually standing up for the things that need to be stood up for. It would be about justice, giving people their, their proper due. It would be about temperance, control of the, uh, the bodily appetites. You know, and the, the monks knew this. Um, they, they talk about temperance uh, being the first thing that has to be cultivated. If you can't control the bodily appetites, not, not even for sex, but for food and for drink, if you can't get that under control, well, you're going to have a hell of a time trying to, you know, get rid of tougher vices like that of, you know, undue anger or sloth or, or you know, vain glory or things like that. Uh, right. And I think they're probably right. You know, that's that's an apprenticeship for <laughs> for doing that. And again, the natural law would tell us, yeah, if you if you want to actually. Reason tells us if you want to actually be able to do the right thing, and we have sort of natural instincts to want to do the right thing. They're not they're not as strong as we'd like, but if you want to be able to follow these out and actually get yourself on the path to being a decent person reliably most of the time, you're going to have to look at where your areas of failing are and actually work on those and not just try to quit doing those, but actually steer yourselves towards the better part, getting, you know, not being prideful uh, is just the start. You actually want to be able to cultivate the, the corresponding virtue, humility. Um, not being slothful, you know. That's, if you can keep yourself from being slothful, that's good. But that's only half the battle. You'd actually need to start, you know, cultivating industriousness, you know, putting yourself to, to proper work. So... Um, yeah, so all of that is part of part of the natural law, Thomas thinks. Um, I, you know, I'd like to say a few things, too, about just what he thinks the divine law does for us. Because now I said, you know, all this stuff about the natural law. Why do we need the Bible then, you know? Why would we need, right. say, the, wis- the wisdom literature? Think about all the the great wisdom that's communicated to us in the book of Proverbs, for example. Right. So Thomas says the divine law helps us out um, by revealing certain things that, that God wants for us or wants us to do or wants us to, to you know, take into consideration. And its function is to regulate relations not just of us to God but also us human beings to each other. So um, he says that, that Thomas... Um, he thinks that love the, the Lord and love thy neighbor, these are primary and general precepts of the law of nature, and they're, they should be self-evident to human nature. Um, but oftentimes they're not, right? It, especially when we get into sticky situations, it's really easy to say, um, you know, love your neighbor as yourself until your neighbor has done you wrong. And then suddenly, you know, in that particular case, it kind of goes out the window and reason, right. you know, reason is trying to say, no, 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 the natural law tells you, 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 you need, don't make an exception in this case, and uh, that may not be strong enough, right? So you actually do need some sort of divine law saying, look, here's what you're supposed to be doing. Love your neighbor. Knock it off. Um, yeah, it doesn't have knock it off anywhere in the Gospels as far as I know, but, but you could kind of read that in. So... Right. Um, 
what is what is faith and what does the divine law contribute? And Thomas tells us there's there's four things that it does. Two of these really have to do with natural law, and two of these have to do more with human law. So one of these is um, we have an end, we have a goal, we have a purpose that transcends the merely natural. And that is enjoying eternal happiness with God. And that means, um, you know, actually being the kind of beings that can endure eternal happiness with God, um, which, you know, uh, not everybody's ready for. Um, it's, it's not as if, you know, people have this idea that you just, you know, make it into heaven and then everything's on easy street before that. No, you actually have to, you know, do the right things, not just so that God opens the door and lets you in, but so that you can actually be the kind of person who could take an eternity with God and not, you know, not be burned up or bored or, or things like that. So we have this end transcending the merely natural. So it's eternal happiness. And so we need a law that goes beyond our merely natural human reason and our natural inclinations, however good they are, and steers us towards that end, that goal. Um, it gives us well, extra things that we need to know. Go ahead. Tell you what, if uh, if it's okay with you, because we've already got some people that are calling in, uh, if you don't mind, uh, we'll take a break real quick at the top of the hour, and uh, that'll that'll give some people some some time to uh, to call in. Let me give the number again real quick. It's um, seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven. And uh, let's. Uh, do, do, is that okay with you, Doctor Sadler? Do you mind if we if we do that? Yeah, sounds good. Okay, so what we'll do is we'll just take a quick break, and then we'll come back, and um, we'll uh, we'll open up the phone lines and uh, go from there. So, be back in one minute. Okay. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. One minute apologist. If you had one minute apologist. to be able to unpack for the audience, we interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. The age-old question, has God said? That question has echoed into the 21st century, and still today many people question the reliability of God. And as Christians, we hear that the Bible is not reliable. How do you respond to somebody who says, Dr. Geyser, the Bible is not reliable? Well, my response is, um, God can't err. The Bible is the Word of God, therefore uh, the Bible cannot err. So if you're going to deny that conclusion, you have to deny one or more of those two premises. So tell me, uh, can God err? The Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar. You know, Romans 3-4. The Bible says uh, it's impossible for God to lie, Hebrews 6-18. The God who cannot lie, Titus 1-2. So if God can't err, and the Bible is the Word of God, and the Bible claims to be the Word of God. Jesus said it's the Word of God in, in John 10, 34 and 35, and Matthew uh, 15, uh, 1 to 5. He said, you do exalt your traditions above the Word of God, and the Word of God cannot be broken in John 10, 35. But if the Bible is the Word of God, then God can't err. Then the Bible can't err. Now to ask him one more question. If God is omniscient, if he knows everything, how many mistakes can an omniscient mind make? 
<laughs> and omniscient mind can't make any mistakes, not in geography, not in history, not in science, not in anything. Well, if the Bible is the Word of God, then write it down. There aren't any mistakes there. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. One minute apologist. If you had one minute Apologia. to be able to unpack for the audience, we interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. Dr. Brown, is Jesus Christ the Messiah of Isaiah 53? Oh, absolutely. Isaiah 53 is, is a key, perhaps the key, Messianic prophecy in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, if you try to interpret it with reference to Israel or the righteous remnant within Israel, it breaks down. But when you recognize that beginning in 52.13 through 53.12, it first speaks of the Messiah's great exaltation, but then it says that, that he'll suffer and be terribly disfigured. And as the text goes on, what we learn is that his own people, Israel, didn't recognize him. He was suffering for their sins, and yet they thought he was suffering for his own sins. And then they come to the revelation, it was our sins that he bore. It was our, our guilt that he was carrying, and by his wounds were healed. So, so it paints the whole picture of the Messiah's exaltation, but only following his suffering, his rejection by his own people, and yet ultimately their eyes opened to receive him as the Messiah of Israel and thus the Savior of the world. Welcome back, and we are discussing uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, and we've been looking at uh, his work on natural law and, and uh, many of his contributions. And uh, the show is going to be podcasted. Uh, it should be up as soon as the, the show is over, actually. So uh, anybody who has missed some or, or uh, want to share it on your, your Facebook or email, uh, the podcast will be up. So feel free to uh, check this out. Also, if you've not liked our page, uh, go to Theology Matters um, with the Palous on Facebook, and we have all of our podcasts available. We've done uh, numerous shows defending the Christian faith. We've done uh, several de debates, actually, uh, with different Christian apologists versus Mormon apologists versus uh, atheists. <clears throat> the debates are always a kind of a big hit, so go on our Facebook page and uh, and like the like the page. Uh, that's theology matters with the Palouse, P-E-L-L-E-W. That's how you spell that. Kind of kind of weird and different, I know, uh, but uh, you'll find all of our our podcasts on there. So, Doctor Sadler, are you there? I am. All right. Well, if it's okay with you, I guess we'll go ahead and, and start taking some calls. Sounds good. All right. Give me, I'll give you that number out one more time for those listening. It is 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907, and we'd love to uh, take your calls and let you talk with Dr. Sadler. So, uh, caller, can I get your name and where you are calling from? Evan Palou, I interrupt your regularly scheduled program to tell you that I'm praying for you and Melissa and little Elay. I love you, baby. So I can't say her name, but this is Thomas. So I'm just supporting oh. the show. The show, great show, great guest. And I um, just wanted to call in and tell you that I am sending prayers your way for the baby and for you and for Melissa. And love you to pieces and keep up the good work. 
All right, man. I appreciate that. Thanks, Thomas. God bless, buddy. All right. Appreciate that. Always good to get a little word of encouragement. So I appreciate that. I'll go to our next caller here. Caller, uh, can I get your name and where you're calling from? My name is uh, JJ. I'm calling from Cascade, California. Great. You had a question for Dr. Sadler? Yeah. Uh, hi, Dr. Sadler. I'm, I'm a big fan of your videos. I discovered it back in uh, March, I believe. And, uh, you know, yeah. as an 18-year-old, you know, going through that crisis of confidence, so to speak, and that looking for truth, they've been helpful, so I can't thank you enough for making them. But um, my, my question kind of has to do with the relationship between uh, reason and faith. Uh, so, so I'm a Catholic who recently came back to the church, and I've been, um, you know, very satisfied and persuaded by Thomas Aquinas and Aristotle and Anselm, you know, the entire tradition. Um, and I have a friend who's part of the Orthodox Church and is really into uh, Kierkegaard and Dostoevsky and, William James and Christian existentialism in general. Um, and it seems, you know, we're both Christians, but it seems like we're always somehow radically at odds with each other. Um, you know, I get really excited to show up in, like, Anselm's ontological argument or Aquinas' five ways or natural law, and he's like, whoa, whoa, you know, slow down, hold on a minute. You can't prove the existence of God. That's antithetical to faith. Or You can't ground morality even at all in reason. You know, just look at the story of... Um, the Binding of Isaac, or read Kierkegaard's Fear and Trembling, you know, um, true faith must be completely irrational and study must be completely subjective in as much as it doesn't appeal directly to God's revelation, which is arbitrary. So so I guess my question kind of boils down to this. If Aquinas and Kierkegaard sat down in a bar together, what would Aquinas say? How would their conversation pan out? Would he, you know, appreciate some aspects of Kierkegaard and existentialism? What would he say to someone who says, you know, the God of these cold metaphysical concepts isn't the God of Abraham? Or what would he say to someone like Dostoevsky who would say, you know, what your exalted reason is done in the 19th and 20th centuries alone? How can the people who have praised reason so much are the ones so radically opposed to Christianity? So I realize it's a long, complex question. Hopefully I didn't overwhelm you there. No, so there's there's actually um, several questions there. So let me try to take each one of them in turn, and we'll start with the, the more um, uh, dramatic one. If you were to get Thomas Aquinas and Kierkegaard and sit them down at a table together and uh, have them talk, what would happen? Would sparks fly? Would, they, would one of them get up and say, I've had enough of this guy, I'm taking off? Or would they, would they reach some sort of common ground? And if you read enough Thomas and you read enough Kierkegaard, um, you find they would, actually. Because Kierkegaard, throughout his works, so there's, it's very different, and this, is, this will be part of the second thing I want to say. There's a, there's a huge difference between Kierkegaard as a thinker and Kierkegaard and the uses people have made of him. Likewise with Thomas and uses people have made of Thomas. If you read through Thomas's work, you'll never find Thomas saying that the God of, you know, pure metaphysics is, you know, sufficient and that we, we leave behind the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, he, he says in his four ways, these or his five ways, sorry, these are ways in which you can demonstrate to somebody that God is, but that doesn't tell you enough about God. That's why we have the rest of the Summa. Um, and Kierkegaard also, on his part, he didn't say reason is totally useless. As a matter of fact, he, he situates reason within the scope of what he thinks it's able to do in works like Philosophical Fragments or um, 
uh, either or, you know, this huge, almost novelesque thing, uh, repetition. In these sort of works, he's not saying that um, the person who is using reason has just sort of blinded themselves altogether. That's a misreading of Kierkegaard. Um, he thinks that there are some places where passionate commitment is going to be required. Now, you know, so he could say to Thomas, where's your passionate commitment? And Thomas would say, well, you know, I actually exerted that that passionate commitment when my family kept me locked up for, for quite a while because I wanted to join the Dominican friars. And uh, my brother sent in prostitutes to try to get me to abandon my vocation. Uh, it's not as if these, these, these guys didn't have any sort of uh, uh, lived connection. Um, so the the other thing I'd like to say, and I, I did say a little bit this already, there's a big difference between Thomas's thought and what people make of of Thomas. You know, the sort of manualistic, uh, very scholastic in the pejorative sense use of Thomas. That's not Thomas really. That's that's a truncation of Thomas. And I would say that. It's kind of interesting because you bring up, you know, Catholic and, and Orthodox. This is not a Catholic Orthodox thing. Um, right. It's it's something that happens within Catholicism and also within Orthodoxy because, you know, the Orthodox they have the Philokalia. They have all these great thinkers like Maximus the Confessor. Um, many of the early church uh, fathers are, are actually, you know, in the Greek part of the, the church, uh, and they manage to, you know, sort of assimilate the, the ones who aren't, uh, like, Athanasius to them anyway. So it's not as if there isn't a coherent uh, tradition of valuing reason and valuing rational uh enterprise in, in understanding the scriptures and understanding the Christian life in, in, in the very heart of orthodoxy. There is even orthodox uh, philosophy. There is an entire you know, uh, set of traditions of philosophical schools within Eastern orthodoxy. And the fact that some Eastern orthodox tend to ignore those and go for uh, you know, stuff that's a little bit more irrationalist or devaluing the, 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 the capacities and the value of reason it doesn't really tell you that much about orthodoxy. We Catholics have our own people like that. Um, Peter, Peter Damien in the Middle Ages said that not only was dialectic, you know, a tool of the devil, even grammar was a tool of the devil. Better not read grammar. <laughs> and, and, you know, so it's not as if we haven't had our own fideists, um, to use the, the term that we usually use uh, to describe yeah. that kind of thing. Um, these are tendencies within within religion in general, I think. Um, so I think it's it's in in some respects an accident of um, current circumstances that you're running into these problems talking with Orthodox friends, who I hope are also friends still. You know, you can right. yeah, yeah, of course. You, yeah. Um, and it it doesn't have to do with the heart of their tradition. You know, if they were to read Don, John John Damascene, they wouldn't find him saying that reason is no good, or Clement of Alexandria, or uh, you know, pick whoever you like. Um, it's not as if they don't have a, a coherent um, background to draw on. You're not going to get real far talking to them about you know the, the three big A's: Aquinas, Anselm, and and and. Uh, uh, 
Aquinas, Anselm, and, and Augustine, because those are all Western doctors, and the Orthodox generally don't don't read them very much, um, which you know um, I, I guess makes perfect sense because a lot of people over here read Augustine and don't read uh, Basil or Athanasius or John Chrysostom or you know any of those those great thinkers either. Um, does that answer uh, the, the very yeah. long question? Yeah, yeah. You think, you, do you think it's fair to say though that um, within within the Catholic tradition, there's more of an emphasis on reason? I'll give you an example, like a recent day example. Uh, David Bentley Hard, if you're familiar with him, he's an Eastern Orthodox philosopher, and he is actually um, he, he he buys into uh, a lot of the stuff that I that I'm into the the, the traditional um, arguments for God. However, he doesn't buy into something like the natural law necessarily. So. Um, yeah, there, there, was a con- there was a controversy lately between Hart talking about natural law and, and one of the things we we got to be kind of careful about is um, when it comes to natural law theory, you always got to ask who's natural law theory. So do you mean natural law theory as interpreted by people like uh, – Finnis and Grisade and, you know, quote, new natural law people who, and this is just a completely, you know, off-topic thing. I find that stuff really stultifyingly dull and uninforming. Um, and uh, if that's what natural law is supposed to be, I couldn't be interested in it. Yeah. Um, or is it, do, you, do you actually go back and read Thomas Aquinas and see what Thomas Aquinas had to say? Or do you read people like you know, Jacques Maritain, Yves Simone, um, and, you know, modern-day people like Alistair McIntyre who are trying to make some sort of natural law. I think that, that Hart and McIntyre are a lot closer in their approaches to things, even though Hart is, you know, so indebted to, to uh, contemporary uh, continental philosophy. Um, then Hart and and um, Finnis would be. I think that Finnis, in certain respects, is almost at antipodes from, from that sort of thing. Um, so I, again, I don't think that it's, I don't think that it's a, a Catholic Orthodox, um, that the line runs, runs there. Right. Um, there, there's, there's plenty of Catholics who are perfectly willing to, to totally dispense with natural law and, and have done that, um, for, for quite a while. And, the one thing is natural law is able to provide us with, at least in its Thomistic conception, it's able to provide us with an understanding of why somebody would reject natural law as well. And that's one of the things, by the way, that I think makes a moral theory a good moral theory, is it's not a, it's not only able to tell you how should you live, you know, what's good, what's bad. It's also able to tell you how do you make progress and how do people screw things up. How do they right. go astray in understanding things? So, again, a very long answer to, <laughs> to your question. Well, thank, thank you so much, Dr. Sadler. You're welcome. Uh, you can, uh, I don't know if you have any other questions, but there's no one on the line. If you uh, if you had another question or if that's good. or um, That that really gets at the crux of, of what I've been uh, thinking about for the past couple of months now. I, I think... Uh, Dr. Sadler's right. There's kind of been this false dichotomy set up, um, probably by you know different factions within the Catholic Church and within the Orthodox Church, um, and so the, I mean that that cleared a lot up there. All right. Well, thank you for calling. 
I do have oh, to say one thing that I that I like about Hart is um, he has an article um, where he talks about Saint Anselm, and usually Saint Anselm comes in for just excoriating critique from Eastern Orthodox, in part because there's some historical bad blood there. Anselm was one of the big arguers on the the Western side during one of the councils where there's a controversy actually going on. So that started some really bad blood. But Anselm has this entire theory of the atonement that is um, quite complex and rich and and very interesting that he articulates in Cur Deus Homo. And it's usually uh, read in a very reductive way to turn it into something quite abhorrent by... by, um, Eastern theologians, and you know Anselm en- ends up uh, providing this completely juridical model, and and, and Hart, um, to his credit, says no, we need to really reread the text. We need to like you know approach this with the charity that it deserves, and see what's actually being said here. And then when you do that, quite often you find out that you know um, it turned out quite differently than than what you originally approached it thinking it was going to be like. So that's something I like about Hart. All right. Well, the phone lines, again, they're open, 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907. One of the issues uh, that we, you know, have dealt with from time to time, um, and one of the one of the things last Friday at the um, – at the uh, CIA training I went to, that we're kind of having to deal with, um, and I was kind of curious uh, maybe how natural law could help us in this area, is issues like abortion, issues like uh, same-sex marriage that are so popular, not popular, but such hot-button issues uh, today in our culture, and I, I see just a lot of Christians just argue badly uh, for, the, for their position, and I, I agree with the conclusion, uh, but I, I often hear uh, an appeal to to the Bible, um, which you know, as, as a Christian, obviously the Bible is my my uh, you know final uh, rule of faith. But and I think we should use that when discussing it in the church. But I notice a lot of times when it comes to uh, in the government and stuff like this, they want to appeal to the to the Bible. Uh, with people that are not believers in America, that's not a theocracy. So how do you, how does natural law kind of help us? You 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 talked a little bit about it earlier of how uh, this can can kind of help us navigate through some of these issues. Um, yeah, it's, you, know, um, you know, what I mean, I mean, you probably heard the same. You know, the Pat Robertsons and Jimmy Swaggerts and these kind of guys making these arguments of, you know, just appealing to the Bible. I, I just, I don't think it's a wise route to go in the secular culture. Yeah, I, it, as an argumentative strategy to try to get somebody to see what's wrong with what they're doing, it's not going to be particularly effective unless it produces um, conviction. You know, <clears throat> conviction not in the sense of, of uh, just, you know, belief in general, but, but that actually being convicted. This is something I actually like quite a bit from Protestant theology that you know, Catholics don't talk enough about, this this sense of realizing, oh, my goodness, I've really gone wrong with this. 
I know it's not as if we haven't had that experience, but but we don't have the, the emphasis on it. And yeah, throwing Bible verses at somebody is, is not going to, who's already sort of hardened against that, is not going to uh, be particularly effective. Unfortunately, um, because of its historical association with Thomas Aquinas and Dr. Sadler, are you there? Okay, I think we actually dropped Dr. Sadler as he was in the middle of giving us his uh, his uh, answer to that question. So I'm sure he'll he'll call right back, and when he does, we'll continue with the conversation. It's it's good stuff, though. It's definitely a, a good conversation, and it's one that needs to happen. And uh, it's it's good for us to to ponder and and think on some of these harder issues. So, Dr. Sadler, are you there? I guess we dropped you there. <laughs> I yeah, I'm I'm back. So so I was saying, um, uh, yeah, you know, a lot of times natural law reasoning will also get rejected. Now, if you didn't call it natural law reasoning and you say something like, you know, what are the basic human goods at stake here, and what is the best way to to realize these? And, you know, and doing sort of natural law on the sly, then I think a lot of times you can bring people to, to see that um, the position that they're holding is not the best position, that, that there's something wrong with it. So, you know, with abortion, um, natural law is going to say that, that um, in general abortion is going, to be, is going to be bad. And, you know, it's interesting because if you look at this one, it's not just about the precept of uh, preserving life. That's really, that ought to be the most central thing, of course, because it's an innocent life that you're talking about taking, and you can you can bring up all sorts of reasons that people do when they want to justify abortion, saying, well, what if a, you know, a woman's raped? You know, she shouldn't have to bear a child. That's a product of that. What if... Uh, um, you know, she's in bad economic circumstances. And to those things, you know, there's, there's answers like, well, you could adopt or, you know, give up for adoption. Uh, that's, that's, right. These are not, you know, these are not uh, uh, arguments that, that really stand up to, to muster. <clears throat> uh, there could be legitimate cases in which the um, preserving the life of the mother could require, um, you know, destroying the life of the, the child, those are very rare. And those right. shouldn't be made into the rule. Those should be understood as being a very unusual exception. Not what we use to, you know, for our general principles. Now, if we go beyond just the, the child um, and we look at the effects on other people concerned, there's a sense in which to have an abortion goes against the natural law, not just in the sense of taking life itself, <clears throat> but in the sense of subverting um, the very the very impulses, the the the, the inclinations of, of sexuality and the intimacy that should develop from it, which which should, in fact, this is the way Thomas would see it, um, culminate in in either you know. A child, if that's that's what what comes out of it, or in greater intimacy with the couple, or or in both of them together, and an abortion is sort of like a it's not just taking a, a life, it's like this wound 
between people within the person, uh, the mother herself who, who chooses to have it, that, that a lot of people suffer from for a very long time. And natural law theory would help us to, to understand why that is. Um, and it, it also has um, societal effects. You know, we're, we're living the effects of um, a culture of, of abortion, of what John Paul II called culture of death. Right. Where we have we have demographic effects from the the practice of easy access and you know legal access to to abortions, um, so all of those could, could come into a natural law perspective. It's interesting too because you know in my ethics classes, and I, I usually teach an ethics class every semester. These are the things that the students really really want to talk about. They don't they're not so interested in, in hearing about theories although we need them in order to make sense out of the stuff. They want to jump right into abortion or capital punishment or uh, gay marriage or uh, um, whether we should, you know, feed the hungry or whether Apple is a bad company because there's supply chain issues, all, all these sorts of things, um, what we call applied, applied ethics. But these are, you know, these are where the nitty-gritty takes place. Um, I think natural law could tell us, for example, that we're not doing a particularly good job in uh, feeding the hungry um, worldwide, uh, which, you know, is also one of the, the things that, that we learn from the divine law that we're supposed to do as well. Um, you know, when, when it would come to considering issues like gay marriage, you would have to ask yourself, what are the proper goods of marriage? What is marriage supposed to actually attain? What is it supposed to be providing to the human being? Is it supposed to be just whatever we want to make of it? Um, natural law is not going to really countenance that. It's, uh, you know, it does have a definite understanding of, of human nature. Human nature right. is not just uh, this, this blank slate upon which we can project anything that we, we like. Um, so, yeah, there's I I can, it's, uh, it's a quite... Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, one other issue I was I was actually thinking um, as you were talking earlier, uh, you'd made the comment about um, you know natural law saying it's it's best to to preserve life. Um, I was also going to, um, and I think we we've got another call, so I'll go to that. But maybe afterwards, um, I was thinking maybe we could touch on the issue of euthanasia. That was one of the okay one of the issues I had hit uh, in my ethics class, and I hadn't really. Uh, thought so much uh, through through some of those issues, but I'd love to get your take on that. So, go ahead and sure. get, uh, take this call. Caller, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Am I audible? Yes. You Did you me? have a... Uh, uh, yeah, I, I, we can hear you good. Did you have okay. a question um, for Dr. Seth? Excellent. And yes, I most certainly do. Um, I would like to get his take on the concept of primal morality versus refined morality, as has been scientifically demonstrated, that exists not only humans, but also in animals. Um, also, that's question number one. What do you think about the idea of primal morality versus refined morality for the human condition? And secondly, <clears throat> why would anyone believe that... Um, the morality of the divine entity Yahweh, El Elyon, or Adonai, whichever name you wish to call your God, is objective, putting into consideration the fact that one moment he's, um, what's it called, performing genocide, and the other moment 
well, he's saving people supposedly with a blood sacrifice of himself to him to himself to rid the world of the original sin that he cast upon them. So, first question is, what do you think about primal morality versus refined morality? And secondly, how does any Christian be- how can any Christian believe that the God of the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, has objective morality? When, it, okay, when the Bible and his actions clearly demonstrate that his morality is not objective in the slightest. My name is Alexandros, by the way. Oh, great. Stay on the line with us. Don't uh, don't hang up. Stay on the line, and we'll let you guys chat. Go ahead, Dr. Sadler. Well, I would say, first off, you need to actually tell me what you mean by some of the terms. What, what do you consider to be objective morality? Um, objective morality... Because Objective can mean a number of different things, and it gets bandied about in a number of different ways. Fair enough. Um, The only objective morality that can exist is primal morality, and even that is not objective because certain individuals, just as certain animals, also do not possess empathy. Um, The core foundation of all morality is to Ah. empathize with another individual or another of the same species or of a different species. So, uh, so so now now I have an idea of where you're coming from. So I would say there's a lot of philosophical commitments you've made right off the bat that are not going to be sort of shared across the board by by those of us who who teach or work in ethics. Um, primal morality, refined morality. Um, would you like me to defend them for you? Sure, you can. But here's the main point that I want to make. If you want to start from sort of those sort of definitions, starting points, realize that they're not uncontroversial from the beginning. That's something that you can say, well, these, now I've set the tone of the debate. These are the only things that we're going to work with then. If you define you things, hold on, if you define things in such, such ways like that, you sort of rule out from the beginning much debate with interlocutors. Hmm. Um, might I ask, how do you find it controversial um, for me to say primal morality exists in both humans and animals, and that refined morality only exists in, in uh, humans or other beings with sufficient cognitive capacity to make moral well, judgments? you're mistaking what I actually said. Uh, yeah, I don't the understand scheme. the term controversial. Well, okay, then I'll, then I'll say it. So the scheme that you're sort of superimposing from the very beginning is not something that most of us in ethics are going to actually say, oh, yeah, sure, great, great starting points, we're going to agree to all of this. That's what I mean by uncontroversial. So, um, I mean, you are perfectly free to define things however you like and to say things are scientifically proven. That doesn't actually make it so. And the history within the history of ideas, we have just, t- especially in moral philosophy, we have tons of things that have been taken at one point or another within one local, you know, uh, discourse as being completely conclusively proven, and then they don't they don't turn out to be so. So mm-hmm. if you want to say that that we have, you know, what you're calling primal morality, and I'm sure that there's a whole discourse out there in which people talk in these terms. Um, 
that we share some things in common with animals, that, that's fine. Um, if you want to say that the entire basis for morality is empathy, okay, well, that's much more restrictive. Now you're closer to somebody like, say, Schopenhauer or Hume, and uh, very far away from somebody like Aristotle or Plato or, or Augustine. And so you preclude the possibility of, of having a, a, a discussion with them. If, if you're going to say from the start, well, we have to have these categories and you must work within these, these strictures. Not exactly. Um, um, sorry for interjecting, but um, I also am a student of ethics, even though it is primarily business ethics. Um, I have studied ethics to a half-decent degree. For, for example, Aristotelian virtue ethics must necessarily be part of refined morality. Um, however, when Well, as, as, you, as you're describing it, sure, but we're perfectly free to, to disregard your category of primal and refi refined morality from the start and say, what are the bases for ethics? The more broad question. Here's my point. You, you can define things however you like. You defining it that way in no way requires me or any other interlocutor to accept those categories as being the ones within which we have to operate. I see. So two questions. Firstly, um, should I showcase... Um, a sum of peer-reviewed scientific documentation that showcases that primal morality is a matter of fact and exists both in humans and in animals across hundreds of uh, social animals and social species, um, would you then deny that um, primal morality exists? Because going against the scientific consensus on the matter of... Um, which has demonstrable, replicable, and falsifiable experimentation to support my claim that primal morality exists, would, it, would that not be rather unscientific? Would it be unscientific of me, you're asking? Sure. Yes. I guess it would. To reject, to reject uh, primal morality despite the support well, it has. It would, it, would, it would not be scientific of me to accept on your say-so that there's this entire consensus out there. Because, again, when I, myself, I've, I've got some experience in in teaching critical thinking and looking into studies and, and, and examining where consensus is supposed to be and where it's not supposed to be. And quite often I find that, especially with things where science starts to intrude into morality and metaphysics, the study designs don't actually show what they're putatively supposed to show. But we're getting very, very far away from the topic that, that we were originally beginning with. So I'm going to go back to your, your second question. Here's what I have to say. From a, from a natural law perspective, that's not an issue. Um, because natural law, as we said from the start, is not looking at things in terms of revealed truths. As soon as we start bringing in revealed truths, now we're talking in terms of what Thomas calls divine law. And then we can start exploring... Hold on. Then we can, then we can start exploring those sorts of questions. And... Thomas provides some answers for those, and I invite you to, you know, to look into the Summa and read the, his sections on the old law where he's discussing uh, things like what, what you're describing happening in the book of Judges. Um, these are, you know, these are some real deep issues. Um, 
you asked how can any Christian possibly, and use this term objective, and we went through all that sort of stuff, but it could be better rephrased. How can any Christian accept the notion of God as being in any way moral, given that God countenanced what we nowadays classify as, as genocide, say, in the book of Judges, right, or the book of Joshua? Um, For example, so, one to, uh, from a perspective of knowledge, I do not believe that any Christian can believe that the God of the Old Testament and of the New Testament is a God of moral goodness. Um, from no perspective, well, of knowledge, I repeat. From well, a perspective I, you're, you're perfectly you're you're perfectly at at liberty to believe that. Um, it's interesting because a lot of Christians, in fact, do believe that the God of the Old Testament is a God of, of uh, goodness, indeed goodness itself. Um, so it seems like you believe that you've found a sort of incontrovertible argument that's been used many, many times to just sort of, you know, make sure that Christians learn for the first time that their beliefs can't possibly be, be, uh, be true. Um, Indeed, considering the um, the percentage of Christians that have actually read the Bible and have actually read cover to cover, uh, instead of simply having a preacher preach to them the specific parts that the church would like them to be knowledgeable of. Well, what does that have to do with anything? It has to do with the matter that uh, a majority of Christians, as far as I am aware, are ignorant of the Bible and what their God does. So, for example... Um, murdering 42 children for insulting a bold man, for example, um, ordering and condoning uh, cannibalism amongst people, um, ordering yeah, and condoning well, slavery. I would suggest that what you probably want to do, if you really are interested in this question, is not just a polemical thing, and you really want to see what, what the better Christian responses to it are, is uh, actually read some of the Christian fathers and doctors addressing these sorts of, you know, things um, and see what they have to say. Because it's not as if, you know, these these are posed for the very first time circa, you know, 2013. There's a long-standing tradition of, of, of thinking very deeply about these sort of things, of thinking that, that they do constitute problems. And I don't think the fact that cr many Christians are ignorant uh, of what it is that they're, they're, you know, buying into holds much water here. Um, this is all becoming very polemical, and I'm, I'm, quite frankly, I'm not very interested in that sort of thing. Would you, um, a final point, I would like to ask, would you agree that it is absolutely necessary that one perform intellectual acrobatics in order to justify infan repeated infanticide and genocide? No. I would say that to, to want to use the term intellectual acrobatics is once again sort of imposing these polemical categories from the very beginning. Oh, um, how would you call justifying genocide and infanticide then? Other than intellectual well, acrobatics. I'll invite you to think about other ways that perhaps it could be said other than intellectual acrobatics. And I'm sure that if you think about it, you'll be able to come up with some, some more charitable descriptions of what it is that you want your interlocutors to do. Mm. Very well, then. Thank you very much for your time.
and good luck with your endeavours for the rest of the night or day. Bye-bye. So some of those are, are real genuine issues. Thomas, his approach to considering uh, moral issues where we want to describe what's been taking place wouldn't be to automatically impose categories, say, like genocide, which, which is a modern category. But let's say we can, we can project that back into the, the past. Thomas would say we need to look at what he, what he calls the moral species of particular acts and come up with the best description for them. Um, oftentimes that itself takes a lot of good, hard intellectual work and a lot of debate back and forth. But what's interesting is that you find this sort of thing being carried out in discussions between Christians. Uh, a lot of the, the, the objections that... that uh, non-Christians pose to, to Christians are actually examined and, and you know, felt to be deep, deep problems in, in the very literature of Christianity. So are, are you there, Devlin? Or am I, uh, so to speak, on my own in, uh, on the air? Well, if so, um, maybe in the time that we still have left, I will, uh, till I hear otherwise, talk a little bit about um, where where this idea of natural law came from historically, because Thomas is coming at a, at the the end of a long history of uh, thinking in these these terms. So. One classic source for it was, was uh, in, in Greek literature, actually. Sophocles talks about uh, a law um, that supersedes the laws of the city. Are you there? I, I am here, Dr. Sab. I had some, <laughs> some crazy technical difficulty. That I, sorry about that. I missed most of the conversation with the caller, but uh, continue going well, as okay. you were. So let me interrupt well, just, Okay. Uh, well, unless we have another caller, in which case I'll just take that because um, this is the time for that. Yeah, let me give the number out again. 760-542-3907. 760-542-3907. It sounded like we had Richard Dawkins on the other end of the line there. <laughs> for a second with yeah. the old uh, accent there. You hear these sort of things over and over and over again. It's it's um I I have to say I'm not I'm not particularly good at at responding to them in part because um I just don't like getting into the, the tendentious stuff because um I used to be a big debater and once once you start to get into that, it's it's very easy to like you know see the openings and go on the attack and and uh, for me it's always been a, a thin line between sort of proving your points and um, demolishing the opponent's position <clears throat> and 
there are there are many other people who are are much better at negotiating that that line than I am. So I try to pull myself back from that sort of stuff as much as I can in order to to try to cultivate some some charity. Um, but you know the basic the basic problem is that if you begin if you try to begin a debate by by throwing out uh, and I see this a lot in my YouTube um, uh, comment section too. But if you try to begin a debate by saying, "Well, you have to accept these categories from the start, or else I'm not going to talk with you," and those categories right. already commit somebody to to an explanatory scheme or, or a moral scheme that's going to clearly be in their you know bad for their position, it's crazy to expect your opponent to actually say. Um, yes, I would like to be an opponent fighting against you under totally unequal conditions. Let's start now. Um, and I, I just don't get why um, why people uh, why, why they why they think that somebody would do that. Um, yeah, in the deck, there isn't. What's that? Kind of kind of stacking the deck from the outset, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and like I was saying, you know, in, in the period where, where we, sort of, I think, lost connection, you know, it's not as if Christian thinkers have not debated among themselves and pulled their own hair out and agonized over all of these sorts of issues and left us a great heritage of literature behind where they'll say things like, yeah, this is a real problem, and here's my best effort at a solution of it. And I would love to see the sort of good faith effort made on the other side by people going right. and leading them, you know, and, and not just summaries of them or digests of them, but actually reading them. I mean, yeah. all it takes is to, to read, say, Dostoevsky, and and you'll see the problem of evil put in, in starker terms than, than any Richard Dawkins can possibly do, um, and, and done so with a, a real sense that we're talking about something that, that, that really matters here and isn't just a talking point, you know, uh, and yet, and yet somehow, you know, and yet somehow, um, there's still faith and there's still, you know, a conception that, well, we do need to, to think this stuff out and we do need to, to get to the bottom of this. Um, and we may not be able to get to the full bottom of it because, after all, God is mysterious. But we can proceed some way into it and, and make some sense out of it. All right. Well, we actually have another call on the line, so I'll I'll go ahead and take that. Okay. Hello, call. Forget your your name and where you're calling from. Hi, uh, I'm JJ. I, I was the second caller earlier. I just figured I'd, oh. I'd put in another question if we didn't have anyone. Yeah, uh, go right ahead. Yeah, uh, Dr. Sadler, I'm actually uh, the one, I don't know if you remember, um, on Twitter about a week or so ago, I asked you um, about, uh, you know, Sartre's and really existentialism's whole proposition that existence precedes essence and uh, with the whole thing with uh, Vlack, Vaclav Havel and, you know, if that made any room for the uh, the Marxist, um, you know, crimes against inherent uh human dignity, uh, and I just figured it kind of tied in, you know, because when we talk about Aquinas, we talk about, you know, the essences of things, on, on being an essence, one of his works and stuff, so I was just wondering, I'm, I'm really kind of confused because of your answer, um, what what the whole difference between essentialism and, and existentialism is now. 
Well, there's no such thing as either is, is part of the problem. Um, existentialism is, is a title that we use to name a bunch of different thinkers. And Sartre is guy, he's one of the big thinkers, and he's the one who said, well, ex- existentialism means that essence, that, that existence precedes essence. And then, you know, not too long after that, Heidegger said, well, not exactly what I meant. Uh, so Heidegger ended up repudiating the, the title of existentialism. Marcel, who Sartre, um, you know, criticized in, in that, that essay, at the existentialism is humanism, um, responded to Sartre and said, well, no, I think that the, the difference between <clears throat> the, uh, the problem and the mystery is really what's at the essence of existentialism. So existentialism by itself, we, we can't really understand it as a uh, completely coherent movement of thought of which Sartre is the prime representative. Instead, we have to understand it as uh, a bunch of of connected figures dealing with similar themes and coming to very often quite different conclusions about them. Otherwise, right. you can't manage to get Kierkegaard and Nietzsche and Dostoevsky and then Leon Shestov, who's the first guy actually to start writing about all three of them, uh, onto the same page to begin with. And then essentialism, that's another term that means very different things depending on what context you're in. These days, in some circles, it's a dirty word. You know, to call somebody an essentialist means that they they buy into a hegemonic notion of human essence that you know must be realized, and 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 uh, that's the way it tends to get get bandied about now. Um, basically, as being almost a sort of uh, substitute for for racism or sexism or or pick whatever other discriminatory thing you like. Now, so that's all ground clearing. You brought up three three um, very different modes of thinking. You've got Sartre on the one hand. You've got Marxism, which is in its own you know whole historical tradition. And then you've got Thomas Aquinas. And what you want to ask yourself when you're worrying about things like existence and essence is, do all three of these thinkers or movements, do they all mean the same thing by these terms? Or do they have somewhat different concepts? You know, you could say that Marxism is, in fact, a kind of a mentalism, you know, a humanism yeah. that is, is focused on realizing the essence of human being as homo faber. Um, but that's not the same thing as what Thomas means by the essence of a human being, you know. Right. And what understand is the existence of a human being, which which is where real goods exist, real goods are. Um, you know, we, we all as human beings have an essence, a common shared essence, but that essence for Thomas is mere potentiality, except insofar as it is realized in actually existing human beings. Um, and those actually existing human beings, those are what is, you know, what is good. Right. Those, those, that's where the, the human dignity actually resides. Actually, not just you know potentially, but but actually, where we have yeah. a human dignity because of our essence, but but we have in our existence. And so I need to recognize in you, um, your actual existence as being you, not just 
human being number 569, you know, from a, a template of, of, of human beings. And where the Marxists, in, in large respect, went wrong, and, and, and I don't want to just say it was just a matter of, you know, the theory didn't go well in practice, because there are some Marxist theoreticians who say some terrible, terrible things. I mean, you can read Joseph Stalin talking about he thought Lenin was, was getting right and uh, chilling. Um, but where the Marxists ended up going wrong was wiping away all these, these traditional conceptions of, of human being and human dignity and putting almost nothing in its place other than this this dream about the you know the realm of the proletariat and a whole wasteland that was dominated by a new form of party politics in which it was no longer this party against that party but the party against everybody else and it turned into its own in in the communist countries that you know where where it actually took place it turned into its own new form of a way for human beings to abuse each other once more, to, to you know, push the envelope of, of, of expropriation and torture and infection. And so it, it, it turned against what Marx, you know, had envisioned as being something very different for human beings. Um, does, that, right. does that go to your question? Yeah, yeah, I guess, I guess where I, I, I read... Um, Sartre's uh, women of choice, I can't really pronounce her name. Uh, uh, you probably know it. Um, but um, she she said famously that, um, you know, one is not born a woman, one becomes a woman. Uh, and so that yeah. kind of led me to think, oh, one could, you could say, you know, based on that conception, one is not born human, one becomes human. So that would take away the inherent dignity of each individual person. You know, one has to become human throughout their life and not... In, they don't have inherent worth. That's kind of, that's kind of uh, what I was thinking. Yeah, I, I suppose, um, but that's not the way a lot of Marxists talk. Um, it, it's not as if historically any any Marxists that were you know committing atrocities or you know throwing people into the gulag you know said, well, Sartre said, so therefore I'm going to yeah. you know this is licensed to act in this, this terrible way to another human being. Oftentimes they, they actually, um, you know, there, there is something to that notion of sort of like having to earn the right to be seen as human. And I don't think that Sartre was, was saying that. Sartre, Sartre would actually say that um, if you were to treat people that way, you're expressing a, a particularly hellish vision of humanity. Um, but but there were a lot of Marxists who certainly did treat people that way, as if you had, you know, it was it was on you to prove that you were actually human, so that we would treat you that way and not not you know abuse you once you were in the work camps. Um, I mean, once you were, you know, if you reached social needs and once you actually were in the gulag, you were screwed as far as like being treated like a human being. That was that was it. You know, the yeah. only vestige of that that you might find what would be for your fellow prisoners and that would be if they were the political prisoners and not just the thieves and cutthroats who'd been thrown in because they would abuse you too you know as being a right but yeah it's not as if the marxists had a monopoly on this this kind of conception of uh you're not really human unless i see that you're human so you better you know prove it to me that you're human because um you know, 
imperialism in in uh, the the 19th and 20th century um in in point of fact often acted like that fascist regimes acted like that as well right um you know subordinating the 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 very value of the human being to the to the state so it's not as if you know marxists had a, a, a the market cornered on that yeah yeah you just and again, I got confused because you know you, you see you also see that famous picture of Sartre sitting next to Che Guevara, and I think he may be with somebody else. But um, you, so you can kind of see where I went wrong. Well, you know, Sartre influenced a few um, a few Marxist and socialist thinkers, um, but I think that Sartre was also given to sort of inflating his own importance. Uh, when, when you get down to it, you know. Um, yeah. You know, in a right. lot of ways. Go, go, go ahead, ahead, Dr. Sadler. Take, take about 30 seconds, and then we're we're almost out of time. So I'll, I'll let you take 30 seconds to, to wrap up. JJ, I want to thank you for calling, and you're always always welcome. Oh, thanks so much back. for having me. Anytime, my friend. Well, Okay, so so natural law in the thirty seconds. We have we have inclinations that are part of the very fabric of our, our human nature that we share together. We have the gift of reason, which we also share in common, but has to be developed within each one of us. And if we apply that gift of reason to those inclinations and we work hard at it, we'll actually figure out how we ought to live together and how we ought to make our way towards God. Wow, that's good. That's that's pretty awesome. Summing that up in thirty seconds like that, it's uh, got to be a mouthful for sure. But uh, <laughs> man, it's always always great to have you on, and uh, would love to keep doing you know different different um, philosophers and and kind of going over some of their main thoughts. So maybe if you're interested, I can get with you again after the show, and, and we can do some. Maybe we can do some of the atheists. Look at some of the influential atheists and their ideas. Yeah, we could. We could. There's a whole range of things we could we could look at. All right. Well, let's do it. I again, I appreciate you coming on, and look forward to having you on again. Thanks. Thank your uh, your wife and kids for for uh, sparing you and letting us pick your brain for a couple hours. Well, thanks for having me on. Anytime. Appreciate it. God bless. All right. That was Dr. Sadler. The podcast will be up. You guys can be sure to listen to it, share it with your friends, and uh, let's get the information out there. That's that's the, the goal of the show. So we'll come back and be at it again next week. God bless. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. The word justified means that you and I stand before God acceptable, spotless, pure, and without sin. That God looks at us and says, there is no sin in that man. There is no sin in that woman. That he looks at us and we are now just in his sight. So all the blasphemy that we've done, 
by choosing stuff over God, all the blasphemy that we've lived in by saying my way is better than God's, all the blatant sin of saying creation is better than God's is removed and God sees them as just. Much more than having now been justified by His blood. This is great news. Nothing about your effort in that text at all. Nothing about your might, your religious stamina, your morality, your cleaning yourself up. You have been justified by an act of God. Bottom line, you have not earned right standing in front of God by your effort or your cleaning up of your life. We have been made pure standing blameless in front of God, not because of any kind of religious or moral pursuit, but because Christ died. And in His death, He absorbed all of God's wrath for you and I. And that's why the Bible says that for the children of God, we are not appointed to suffer wrath. Because the wrath bestowed upon you and I was absorbed by Christ's death. 